Well, congrats to everyone who made it through turn. Now take a deep breath and just rest for a second. Okay, now let's talk about your lease up plan for 2020. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how quick we have to change gears in the student housing industry? So seriously, what's your plan? What's your plan for renewals? What's your digital strategy? How are you going to get in front of more international students? How are you going to leverage social media? What is going to get students' attention this year? Every marketing plan for each property is going to be different, but one thing that should be consistent in every marketing plan is listing your property on Unilodgers. Why? Because Unilodgers has a 10-year history and an infrastructure for getting in front of more international students than any other listing platform. Another reason why? Unlike other listing services, you don't pay a monthly listing fee and have no guarantee of an ROI. You only pay Unilodgers a fee once a student moves in. Not sign a lease, but once the resident has actually moved in. So what is there to lose? Visit the link in the show notes or go to unilodgers.com forward slash contact hyphen us. That's U-N-I-L-O-D-G-E-R-S dot com forward slash contact hyphen us and get your property listed today. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and today I'm being joined by one of our new co-hosts, Dr. Philip Batazuski. How are you doing, Dr. B? Thanks, Wes. I'm really excited to be here and be a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you are a veteran of, of higher ed administration since 2005, and we asked you to be on the podcast this year in order to, to provide that on-campus perspective that we feel is, is so vitally important for our audience members who are, are typically site-level and regional-level uh, managers of, of purpose-built off-student housing communities that, that are supporting universities, uh, not only across the country, but across the world. And uh, just thank you so much for, for agreeing to, to come on as a co-host and tackle a lot of important subjects for us this year. We had you at our Waco Summit presenting with uh, a couple of other folks. I can't wait to, to actually put that out on the podcast for everybody to hear about building bridges between, uh, between off-campus and, and on-campus folks. And, and again, just, just thrilled that you're here. Thanks, Wes. Yeah, I'm excited to to share the on-campus perspective with the off-campus folks. It was great to be there in Waco and meet some site-level folks from the Southwest, especially since I'm up in the Northeast, we wouldn't necessarily run into each other. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, you you are in the Northeast. You, you live in Buffalo, but you've kind of been all around to different institutions. Why don't, uh, just for our audience members, get them familiar with with your background and, and your origin story as it relates to higher ed administration? Sure. So I, I grew up in Buffalo, actually. So it was a return home, even though I've been gone for quite a number of years. I uh, did my undergrad up here at the University of Buffalo and then ended up moving to Ohio and did my master's at the Ohio State University. Um, I'm a very <laughs> proud Buckeye, even though I wasn't born in Ohio, which is either going to make the listeners love or hate me. Um, so I did uh, my master's there and spent some a couple of years for actually um, working there full time before I moved south to the University of Georgia um, and did my PhD down there working working in housing as well. I'm less slightly less, but only slightly less of an avid bulldog fan. Um, depending <laughs> on people following college football, it was a rough football weekend for the for Bulldog Nation. Um, we, you know, we had a, a rough week. Here's, here's hoping for a turnaround. And then spent some time after that at the University of Pittsburgh, moving north. Then I moved even further south down to Florida, where I met our guest on today's episode or on this episode. And, and then just recently, back in April of this year, moved back up to Buffalo. And I currently serve as the Assistant Dean of Residence Life at Buffalo State College, which is part of the State University of New York system. We are actually the only 
urban centered institution in SUNY, which means that we're, um, we're smack in the middle of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. We've got about 27 to 2,800 students that live on campus with a two-year housing requirement. We, we do have some purpose-built off-campus student housing that is right adjacent to campus. So we spend some time um, working with those folks on my own campus, um, in addition to the fact that obviously I'm talking a little bit from the on-campus perspective. Well, great. Uh, yeah, thanks for for getting everybody kind of up to date on on your background. Uh, you and I have been talking since um, early spring about you coming in to to helping us out with this, and I've actually been on the website for, <laughs> for several months. But we wanted to. Uh, you know, the first one kind of out of the gate that we wanted to do, and there's two good times of the year to do it typically in, in the academic world, which is March, April time frame, and then once again in September and October. And that's the, the discussion on mental health. I know that it's it's something that, especially on campus where you've got most of the population, most of the freshman population that is living on campus such of a, a critical time as they're transitioning, you know, from living with mom and dad uh, into, you know, being responsible for a lot of things on, on their own. And, and some of the pressures that go along with that really bring a lot of things to the surface in regards to, to mental health. And so I wanted to make sure that, that we were doing something uh, when we introduced you along those lines and, and this made the most sense. And, and, and so you mentioned the guest that that we actually interviewed for this podcast uh, uh, some time ago, and and gave me a little bit of his background. I'm like, this that's that's perfect. This is exactly the type of person that our audience you know needs to hear from. So wh- why don't you really quick just kind of introduce who the the speaker is for the audience and, and give some background, and we'll jump into the interview. Sure. So we. We both spoke with Dr. Kirk Dewar, who currently serves as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Support and Wellness at Washington University in St. Louis. You'll hear him tell a little bit more about his background. He's been in the mental health counseling wellness field for even more years than I've been working in higher ed and in housing. And he and I were colleagues when we were both working down in Florida. He was um, in the counseling wellness area. I was um, running housing and interestingly enough, um, I transitioned institutions. And then about a month or a month and a half later, he was also transitioning institutions. Um, So we've both left Florida, but he's bringing a a wealth of knowledge on how to not only work with and do actual counseling of of college age students, but also, I think for our, our audience, is bringing information and perspective on what things they can look for in students living in their communities, how they can talk with the staff that are working with the students most closely on warning signs and how to refer and even how to connect uh, the the student to back to the campus that they're already attending. Um, it, it's not about creating some counseling center off campus. It's, it's really using the resources of the campus um, that already exists to support the students living in the community. So yeah, I, I, I echo everything that that you're saying, and, and like I said earlier, this is the the perfect person that uh, our audience should be listening to because you know, you're going to talk a lot about in the episodes that you co-host about uh, building relationships with with the university and and how that can be done and. Someone in Kirk's position is not necessarily someone that an off-campus housing manager uh, may may be able to come into contact, you know, on a on a day-to-day basis. And great if they can. Um, I certainly encourage everybody to to you know seek out whoever's leading the uh, mental health and counseling services for your for your university. But to be able to spend some time and really kind of understand what Dr. Dewar goes over today is not something that you know, they have a, a lot of time, uh, you know, necessary to, to give to someone. So I think this is a perfect podcast for those that have been in student housing for a long time, as well as for, you know, those that, that are certainly new to the industry and want to have a, a better understanding of kind of what's going on, uh, especially through the academic cycle and how that ends up affecting mental health of, of students. So, you know, with that being said, let's go ahead and get in the interview. I do want to say, make sure that you are 
Um, because here at Student Housing Insight Podcast, it's not just about interviews, <laughs> but we are actually working with our partner, Grace Hill, to develop a, a training that we're going to be presenting in a webinar on November 7th. So uh, we'll, we'll get into more of that in the outro. Um, so make sure that you stick around for that. But with that being said, here is Dr. Kurt Dewar. Dr. Dewar, thanks for joining us on the Student Housing Insight Podcast. Dr. Dewar currently serves as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Support and Wellness at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks again for joining us. Glad to be here. So to start us off, before we get into the meat of our conversation, can you give us a little rundown of your history in the field? Sure. So I uh, have a PhD in clinical psychology and I've spent my entire career in academia. My first roles went through uh, a number of different postings, including the academic side of the house where I was a full tenured professor and moved on to a position as counseling center director. And uh, I have since that point uh, held positions very similar to the one that I have now where I oversee Uh, Student Health Counseling Center, Pharmacy, Relationship and Sexual Violence Prevention, um, WashU Cares, which is a a kind of a care or behavioral intervention team. Um, I've also overseen other offices like Campus Recreation and the Accessibilities Departments. So my role kind of encompasses all of those uh, kinds of contents currently. Keeps you busy, at least. Very much so. Dr. Dewar, I appreciate you coming on and helping tackle this discussion on mental health uh, as it relates to, to students. And, you know, one of the things that we really wanted to be able to provide our audience, which is mostly uh, off-campus housing professionals, both at the site level as well as the, the regional and the, and the corporate level, is really just uh, kind of get your insight on, on, you know, some of the things that we should be looking for as far as signs and that type of thing. But, you know, before we even really get into to, to any of that kind of stuff, I really just wanted to, to, to get your insight because you've been involved at several different universities and, and this has been your forte as far as w- with counseling. But tell us just a little bit in regards to the resources that universities have in place for not only you know, housing managers that 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 are serving the campus and the and the surrounding community, but also for for parents and anybody that's kind of coming into daily contact with with students of a particular university. Sure, sure. So uh, probably the obviously the primary one is going to be the counseling centers, and nearly every uh, university, community college, or institution has some variation of a counseling center located on their campus. There are a couple who have uh, decided to outsource. I'll mention that here just uh, briefly. But counseling centers at the university typically are striving to be able to provide mental health services for the students that attend those universities and community colleges, but on a short-term basis. In other words, they are not designed to be able to work with a student on a long-term Uh, issue that might go on for a a protracted period of time, nor are they designed for high-intensity work. And so most of the counseling centers are going to be able to see students for about uh, five to ten visits in any given iteration of therapy. And those uh, centers are typically set up to be able to have students walk in at any point and be able to Uh, have an emergency session if they need it, to be able to have an emergency triage, but then there can be some some wait times. And that's where some universities have moved to off-campus service providers because they will have a lot of master's level clinicians that uh, provide services and they're really focused on just getting students in and getting them therapy. One of the disadvantages of going that route is that a counseling center is also designed to be able to provide additional services to the campus community, including some workshops, some training, some outreach where they try and educate the campus community about mental health related issues and things that can be done. And this is also true for their involvement in housing. So it's not uncommon for both on and off campus housing providers to reach out to the counseling center 
requesting that they come over, um, sometimes provide some seminars or educational experiences to those entities so that they can assist with their understanding of the current trends or, or processes in mental health and also to educate them about how they can get students into uh, see somebody in a crisis fashion in the counseling center. Lastly, I, I think I would also add that most counseling centers um, also have some af after hours providers, uh, meaning that if somebody was to call and it's typically the same number that the counseling center uses during the daytime, if they were to call that during after hours time, they are usually connected to either some of the counseling center providers themselves or an after hour call service. So quite typically at most universities and, and community college, they have some availability of being able to speak to a therapist 24-7. So you and I, Kirk, probably know this better um, working on a college campus, but you mentioned as you were answering Wes's question there that on-campus counseling centers are typically not designed for long-term care. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be? Yeah. So, you know, at, at, at any given university, there are varying needs that a student might have coming into the counseling center. And really, those centers are designed to try and keep the students performing at their academic utmost. And those are usually meaning that the students will present with short-term issues and the most common presenting issues over the last uh, 20 years have been anxiety and depression, with anxiety being on the rise and depression remaining very high, but kind of plateauing at this point. Further treatment that they might, uh, individuals that are attending school might seek, um, can result in a high demand for uh, resources. And the counseling center just don't have enough people to be able to staff those kind of resources. And so typically they'll refer those out into the community for additional treatment. So it's a way for the university to be able to provide for the needs of the students as they go through some transitions at the university, but for long-term treatment uh, for things potentially including uh, substance use issues, eating disorders, other kinds of things where there's a need for a higher frequency, intensity, or duration, um, they're typically going to refer off, off campus for those service availability, and that way they can keep the cost to students for the number of uh, student health fees and other kind of ancillary fees down to a manageable level. So it's not so much that they'd be refer refusing to see them so much as using the resources that they have wisely. Correct. Yeah, there's been an increase in the, in the frequency of uh, risk and, and uh, kind of crisis presentations at the counseling center. And there's always a push and pull between do we try to see all the students that want to come in to see us, especially those high risk and crisis mm -hmm. cases, or do we want to be able to see the students for the entire protracted duration of their uh, mental health needs? And uh, quite honestly, most universities at this point are edging towards the side of making sure that they can see students who are in crisis as a primary, or a primary type of, of service that they provide. Well, Dr. Dewar, you, you mentioned earlier, I, I think, high intensity or high impact type situations. And you were talking um, just then about about crisis situations and, and being able to see those students for for the off campus crowd that, that may not exactly know the definition behind that and what constitutes uh, you know, a crisis situation. Can you give us a little bit more a little bit more of an idea of what that means? Sure. So by crisis, most of the time that we're talking about it at, at a university and, and community college, we are talking about students that are coming in that pose some sort of danger to themselves. And so that can mean that they are um, engaging in behaviors that might look like self-harm. They could be cutting or hurting themselves in some ways. And it also reaches all the way up to a student who has some kind of suicidal ideation or intent. And uh, those students, obviously, we want to try and make as safe as possible with the fewest number of people. So when we're talking about risk or crisis situations, usually we're discussing uh, students that are coming in presenting a danger to themselves. So I think, uh, you know, I feel like um, probably most just, you know, the general population probably understands what that looks like. And, and certainly at that point when things are being said, when they're getting reports from roommates, uh, you know, being able to to listen to what you said earlier as far as what the university typically provides and how they can get to those resources, I think that's helpful. But is there anything that you can share with us that may be precursors isn't the right word, but are, are there any other kind of, um, you know, less intense, less high risk type of behaviors that a property manager 
or even a you know roommate may be able to see and say, okay, this may be the start of something. Because obviously, you guys would you know like to be able to counsel a student at that point versus to the point where they're at risk of harming themselves or someone else. Is there is there some guidelines that you can kind of give us as to hey, here are some common things you should be looking for? Absolutely. So some of the red flags that uh, housing managers might try and attend to are the same that you would look for in, in other types of contexts. So uh, while these are not new, but alterations, especially significant alterations in either direction in somebody's eating, sleeping, or exercise pattern could be indicative of them struggling. So sometimes students will sleep more or less than they normally do. However, those can be difficult to be able to recognize. So Alternatively to that, what we're seeing in in a college-age population currently is different strategies for self-medicating when they're not feeling good. And and by feeling good, I mean they could be struggling with depression, they could be struggling with anxiety, or a whole host of other kinds of things. And that self-medication takes a really broad range of manifestations from uh, the traditional ones that we might think about where they're uh, drinking kind of to numb the pain, but that's not uh, exclusive to that kind of response. So a lot of our students will do things like uh, play uh, video games, Fortnite and others for extended and very protracted periods of time. Others will start to see social isolation and disengagement from friends and other kinds of activities in in still other situations. As innocuous as it might sound, students could be reading novels or watching Netflix for hours and hours just to be able to try and help alleviate some of the fear and anxiety and discomfort that they might be facing. So those strategies of self-medication and isolation, um, especially when they weren't present initially, would be some things that as a housing manager, I would want to be paying attention to. So, and again, you're talking about more of, of, of shifts in behavior. I mean, if if it's kind of their routine of, of playing, you know, two or three hours of video games, but all of a sudden that not even all of a sudden, but maybe over a period of several weeks that ends up going from, you know, two to three hours to six to seven hours. And they're, they're even skipping class. Um, is that, is that the type of shift that we're talking about? Absolutely. And, and uh, I think a piece that you mentioned there last is really key. Um, when, some of their responses to their mental health needs or their sense of struggle starts to impact their their outside life. In other words, when they start missing classes, when they start um, kind of default missing activities, uh, responsibilities, not going to work, other kinds of things certainly would be a clue to that. Or uh, when they start to become sick quite a bit, increased frequency and kind of duration of sickness or, or fatigue can also be signs that they're struggling. So let me, let me kind of break this down to, you know, what I would see a a manager, you know, how they would get a a housing manager, how they would get kind of word of this. Um, It typically comes from a roommate, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah. And I think this is once it's so important as an onsite manager both yourself and your staff, especially your maintenance team who is going into the units to change air filters and, and other, you know, simple repairs, ongoing repairs. It's so important to make sure that you're having an interaction and, uh, you know, just kind of a basic awareness of, you know, what the students are doing. I think especially for our, our maintenance staff members, that's huge because, you know, you're the ones that are always, you know, fixing the problems and, and you're able to see them not, you know, inside of the inside the community clubhouse and that type of thing. But you're actually seeing them in their element in their own apartment and, you know, being able to 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 notice those type of things or be able to have a conversation with a, a roommate, you know, either in their apartment or when they come to the administration office and saying, and just having that general conversation of, hey, how are, how are your roommates doing? How's John doing? How's Sally doing? Whatever. And being able to pick up, you know, when that roommate says, you know, I, he's not going to class anymore. He's not, I don't know what's going on with them. Like, that's a key indicator. So walk, walk me through, walk that property manager through once they get that notification from a, from a roommate that something, and it could just be general conversation, right? But somewhat, you know, you feel like it's a sincere observation by that roommate and they've got some type of worry. Walk a manager through what it is that that they should be doing at that point 
to trying to get that student some services? Is it is it going directly to the parent? Is it further investigation with the the student? Is it going to the university through some type of you know anonymous reporting system? Uh, walk through what you would feel like is the most appropriate. Absolutely. So on campus, as, as you're pointing out, those that have the most frequent uh, contacts with students are often the ones that are in best position to be able to uh, notice some of those discrepancies and changes in them for, you know, in, in the academic environment, it's obviously going to be their professors and teachers. If they're in an on-campus situation, their residence hall advisor is going to be well positioned. And as you're talking about off-campus, it's certainly going to be their uh, resident managers and some of their uh, maintenance staff that have frequent contact with them. So if they're able to observe changes in you know, their appearance, changes in the apartment, to have frequent contact with uh, roommates and others is a really key and critical component. So if they have those kinds of pieces in place where a roommate then steps up and says, hey, I was noticing that my roommate is you know, and it goes on to describe some symptoms that are disconcerting for that roommate. Probably the best next step is to spend a little time with that, uh, that reporter and ask them additional questions to try and get as comprehensive of a picture as possible about what's going on. And because there are lots of uh, different explanations for behavior, I would suggest that the uh, next step would be actually to have a conversation with the person of concern directly and say, hey, we've heard that you your behavior has changed in the following ways or that somebody is concerned about you. And some of those can be difficult to be able to navigate because sometimes those reports come into the property manager and the roommate says, hey, don't tell them that I told you this, but, and then they go on to describe Mm -hmm. the symptoms. And so sometimes the property manager is going to have to be very thoughtful about the degree to which they disclose information and where that or, uh, the origin of that information in order not to break the trust of the roommate that came to them in the first place. But having a conversation with the student of concern would be the primary thing that I would recommend next. And therefore, therein you can gather more data about what's going on with them, the, how long this has been happening. And typically people are very uh, receptive to somebody just saying, hey, I noticed something was going on with you and I'm worried about you and I'm wondering what you can tell me about what's happening. And based on the outcome of that conversation, then a number of different resources could be engaged in at that time. And uh, some of those might include, you know, sitting with that student and saying, hey, are you aware that there are counseling resources on campus? And would you like to sit with me and call over there and uh, make an appointment together? Uh, sometimes that's enough for them to be able to initiate that process. Other times the behavior might be uh, so disconcerting that they that the property manager may feel a strong need to be able to report through, and there are typically, again, at most universities and, and community colleges, a anonymous reporting line typically found connected through the Dean of Students uh, website. And you can go on there and they have availability of putting them in anonymously. And that information is fairly quickly disseminated to various individuals on campus who have a responsibility of caring for that student. And they're likely going to become aware of that and try and marshal uh, a number of different resources to connect the student with some care. If it's even more disconcerting where they have uh, a plan and some uh, specific intent in looping in parents and even local uh, authorities, police in particular, can be really important at that time. If somebody is uh, has, a, has a deliberate plan and the property manager is afraid that they have intent to be able to carry it out in relatively short order, the immediate next response needs to be a call to 911 yeah. to make sure that the appropriate authorities who have specific protocols and specific ways of responding to that are notified so that we can keep that student as safe as possible. So let, let's talk about the habits again, because there's something there that as, as we were talking about that, you know, something that may be a little bit more negative, but I'm also wondering, uh, I've seen a lot of students and over my career that end up having some uh, more obsessive type habits, but it's, I would say, providing at least on the, on the surface, a positive impact where, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe they were overweight and, and began losing weight, or maybe they, you know, maybe they were decently in shape. And then all of a sudden it goes to a whole nother level uh, where, you know, they're working out 24 seven 
and you know it, it it's it's still one of those things where they may actually be skipping class in order to go on a 13 mile run right would you consider those type of of, of change in habits just as alarming as something that may be a little bit more you know docile in, in nature or or um, a little less uh, i guess viewed as uh, i think most people would view it as as being negative or being withdrawn maybe they're maybe they're going the other way where they're super involved with with something that you know could be changing them physically is that is that something that we should we should be aware of as well uh, absolutely so uh, it's typically not uh, the form that their escape and avoidance takes it's the function that it fulfills so while we can look back and say, you know, obviously that somebody becoming very disheveled and unkempt and, and not taking care of themselves is a bad thing in the same way that we would say that overutilization of alcohol and not being thoughtful about that as a mechanism of self-medicating is a bad thing. There's a lot of good productive things that function in a very problematic way for our students as well. So you mentioned um, students might turn to working out a lot more. Um, and while that might have a benefit, it also is a problem. And uh, believe it or not, a student who throws themselves into studying incessantly, uh, that, could be, that could also be indicative of a problem. So it's not what they're doing, it's why they're doing it. And if they're doing it to try to not feel badly, over the course of time, from a psychological point of view, that's going to uh, serve as a, a distinct disadvantage because whatever they're doing to escape or avoid those emotions or those experiences is typically still going to be there at the end of the long run or the reading of you know many, many assignments or any of that kind of stuff. And the emotional difficulty returns back to them. So part of what they're trying to do is using uh, escape and avoidance strategies to try and numb psychological pain when in fact that psychological pain can return back in a heartbeat. So it's not necessarily the overt benefit or deficit of what they're doing. It's the function that it's having for them psychologically. Gotcha. So we've talked a little bit about how to potentially, you know, identify issues on the front end. And then when something is brought to the attention of a property manager or a staff member, how to refer folks Kirk, you and I have dealt with a number of students that have needed more intense care. And so they may have been hospitalized for a short or long-term period, but we aren't removing them from the institution. And so at some point, they're going to come back to school, and then they're also going to come back to their, their place of residence off campus in this case. So I'm wondering... Are there things that property managers, maintenance staff, even if we, you know, if the property manager is connecting to the roommates in the apartment, are there things that they can then do on the back end to be helpful when a student is returning, perhaps from a hospitalization, or even if they went home for a brief period of time, but never withdrew from the institution? Yeah, certainly. So uh, institutions typically have uh, some form of a medical leave of absence policy that they have in place. Additionally, when a student goes into the hospital, those hospital facilities will take care of them and make sure that when they release that student, that they are deemed to be functional in the environment. So property managers, managers could uh, rest assured that if they're released from a hospital stay, that they have gotten the care that they need to where the issues that took them into the hospital uh, initially are not as acute as, as when they are discharged. So they're no longer a danger to themselves, for example. So one of the things that they can do is as that student returns, um, obviously they are trying to get reinitiated back into a routine of attending classes and so forth. And the initial return to uh, the residence is often fraught with some difficulty um, trying to get established and making sure that any of their food is there, any of, the, any of the payments that they missed have been attended to and so forth. So a property manager, I think, just would do the same thing with a student that they might do for a friend. Just check in on them and say, hey, how are you doing? Be aware of the circumstances that they might be going through and welcome them back. I think some of the concerns that students have when they're returning from medical leave of absence is that people are going to uh, treat them differently or be afraid of them in some way, when in fact, that's a time that they just need more empathic and listening ears to be able to help smooth that transition back into their academic process. And students are often quite successful at returning to their university endeavors on the heels of a transition, either from home or from a hospitalized setting. And I know some institutions have some protocol 
on campus that a student has to follow as well, regardless of what the discharge from a hospital facility might be. That's true. That is absolutely true. And and typically those transition plans may uh, require them to meet with officials on campus, sometimes deans of students, sometimes counseling centers, other folks that might help connect them to resources. And typically what they're trying to do is just make sure that the student's doing okay and that they're aware of the resources that they can utilize on campus. The one other thing that I wanted to make sure we came back to as well is um, earlier you mentioned that after hours care is often available via the counseling center in some form, right? You're calling the same number as during the business day and it's connecting you to some after hours resource. If that either doesn't feel like the right call or maybe for whatever reason, the counseling center near a particular campus doesn't have that available, what are some places that make sense to look in the community after hours? Certainly, there are almost always after-hours community providers that have access to resources, but even more importantly, there are national suicide hotlines that can be called. And so regardless of what it is that the community has or doesn't have in that environment, then um, some in some instances, it's a 411. some instances, it's a 711 call, uh, depending on the community and the resources that they have. But invariably, there are national resources that someone could Uh, assist a student in making a phone call so that they can get some of the services that they might need. Kirk, one of the things that uh, this is kind of on my my mind and, you know, when I was on site as well as, uh, you know, I certainly noticed what I'm about to ask you and then certainly over overseeing a large portfolio, I always, you know, had conversations with my managers of, hey, this is kind of the time of the year when a lot of these things with with students begin to, to manifest or come to the surface. Uh, you know, in my own household, the holidays are are always tough because there's people that we've lost and you begin thinking about people at that point in the time. So we're all a little aware of, hey, we we know this is going on and each year we kind of think about this. Let's, you know, let, let's kind of attack this head on. But I, I think in for students, I think that is following some, some other cycles. Uh, I think holidays are, are certainly... Uh, play a part in it. But do you see that from, from your experience? Um, or is that just something that I've noticed from the, from the off-campus world? But these things tend to have some seasonality to, the, uh, to it when, when these type of things manifest. Can you shine a light on that? Or is that something that you know, I'm just observing that uh, isn't really there? No, absolutely. I think that that's uh, accurate. And, and what I'd say is the general category of when those things tend to be manifest or more acute tend to be in times of high stress. And so for our incoming uh, freshman population, certainly their first uh, few weeks of the semester when they have a higher proclivity to be homesick or to be worried about the transition that they're going through, they don't have a lot of friends, and that can be an extremely stressful time. Uh, Midterms, also a stressful time. Finals, a stressful time. But as you mentioned, holidays also impact our students uh, in some ways. Uh, The expectations of uh, very engaged parents can be stressful for them. Other times they have uh, come from a difficult home life and the thought of returning back to home um, during a Thanksgiving or a holiday break could be very stressful to, uh, to them as well. And so we tend to see them fluctuate with that kind of a calendar. So um, in the springtime, the same kinds of issues show up uh, in, in reverse midterms, finals, and then for our graduating uh, cohorts as they anticipate moving on to positions or looking for a job or struggling with finding employment, those can be very stressful times as well. For the cohorts that are not graduating, Uh, What are they going to be doing for the summer and the transition into internships, returning home, other kinds of things often can be quite provocative. And so as a housing manager, um, you want to be attending to what the academic calendar looks like, but also those traditional times of elevated stress. And you'll be able to uh, witness those in terms of the students' sicknesses and other kinds of things. Uh, physical, mental health, or otherwise, that tend to manifest themselves during those t- those time frames. So, paying attention to the time of year and the calendar uh, that uh, the u- institution functions off of is a really good plan because you can start to see those elevations. Thanks. Yeah, that that's uh, all of that makes sense, right? Um, uh, because uh, all of those are stressful times in a student's career, right? And uh, I think the question that that I'm wanting to ask is. 
you know, because I think we're all familiar enough with what the academic cycle holds. But but if it's something that falls outside of, you know, kind of the typical, you know, midterms, finals and and holidays, is it is it typically a um, is it typically a sign of something that's not academic related? You know, maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend situation, that type of thing. So other other kinds of things that uh, housing managers might want to uh, attend to or that don't typically follow the academic calendar would include uh, personal issues that are going on with the student. Um, sometimes they've gone through a difficult romantic uh, relationship breakup. Sometimes they might be having trouble with financial aid or other kinds of employment where finances are concerned. Additionally, family stressors back home also will impact a student to where they might feel that they are struggling with both their academic course load and their family-related issues. And so while there tends to be times that have more acute intensity for a student based on an academic calendar, certainly the things that impact everybody's daily lives can certainly impact students as well. And so um, to be able to be attentive and engage with a, with a student throughout the academic calendar often leads to much better results and an awareness of more finite changes that could occur that if caught early would reduce the degree to which it impacts a student and subsequently the community. So, Kirk, the, the institution that I'm currently at and then one that we worked at together are both incredibly diverse institutions particularly as you look across race, ethnicity, and in both cases, a lot of first-generation college students. I'm wondering, are there any specific things that our listeners should be looking for if they you know, are thinking about the makeup of the campus that they're near? And if there are any cultural or kind of family-related things that we should be paying attention to that might be different depending on what the, the demographics look like at a particular college or university? Yeah, so certainly each campus has a, a, a very different makeup and feel. Um, each institution that uh, each of us have been to certainly changes how, how that feels. So it depends on the campus. If it's a uh, more of a rural campus, especially where there are first-generation students, students who are coming to college as the first person in their family to be able to do so, there are going to be different stressors that impact those students. And uh, certainly the same kinds of things that hit family issues are going to be problems for students who come from kind of more selective institutions. Uh, academic calendars are going to drive them really hard. What we're seeing a lot is um, students that really struggle with a lot of intensity and pressure from what they perceive as parental expectations. Um, and sometimes those are accurate perceptions and sometimes they're not, but parents are not always having those conversations with their kids about what it is that they find to be important. So the institution that a student might be uh, attending can uh, dramatically impact it, the, the student's mental health, depending on what it is that the values of that institution foster and the type of population that they're trying to serve. Kirk, I, as we talked about in, in my intro, I currently work at Buffalo State College up in Buffalo, New York. And we have a large population of students that come to us from the New York City region, and the, the majority of them are either African-American or um, Hispanic, Latino, Latina. And I know that in talking to a number of them, there's some, some pressures from family around seeking mental health services and feelings like maybe I should be able to figure this out on my own. I don't need help from somebody else asking for help from somebody else makes me kind of less than or it's just an additional barrier that I, I hear our students talking about. And so I'm wondering if, you know, if I'm a property manager near Buffalo State, for example, or I'm a property manager at an, an institution with a large diverse population, what are some extra things that I might need to think about when working with, with those students and referring them to resources? Yeah, it's a great question because uh, populations that are coming from international locations or have a particularly um, varied background, especially our underserved populations, are going to be uh, having different approaches to mental health. And uh, some of our international populations especially have an aversion to that, and they're more likely to be willing to seek services at a health center 
for a number of different issues. One, uh, sometimes they will consider those to be real doctors. Um, and two, it's easier to present at a health center and to be able to suggest that, hey, I've, I've not been feeling well. And even the way that they've not been feeling can often be very physiologically manifest. It can be showing up in their heart rate, their breathing, and other kinds of things when it's a sign of anxiety, but it's easier and more comfortable for them to be able to present at the student health center. Student health centers are typically really well trained to be able to recognize some of the mental health issues that are going on. So if a student is inclined to be able to seek services that way, as a property manager, I would be encouraging them to do so. If they're not comfortable going to the counseling center, or if they have worries about how well the counseling center does or doesn't represent the various identities that they come with, then finding a mechanism for them to be able to get some form of help is really encouraging. But to be aware that different cultures, different backgrounds, and different populations have uh, some varying levels of comfort and sensitivity in engaging with mental health service providers. So that's a very thoughtful thing to be able to do as a property manager. So uh, as as we you know, get you out of here, Kirk. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, you know, if I'm listening to this and I want not, not that, you know, logging on and listening to other student housing insight podcasts isn't a great idea, but if I'm looking for more training, more resources, maybe a conference or something like that, where might I look as a property manager to get more information um, about how to help my students with, with mental health or, or referring to resources? Yes, that's a great question. And I think that uh, there are a number of resources on campus. So the first thing I would encourage property managers to do is to turn to campus resources and reach out to the counseling center. Uh, let them know who you are and what you're doing. And they are typically seeing the students that are living in, in those residences and would be very helpful in trying to either provide additional information, pamphlets, booklets, phone numbers, contact information. Um, as an initial resource. So first thing I would suggest is to reach out to the counseling center. Second thing, if you don't have a counseling center and or uh, the, you've already done that, then there's certain, uh, certainly national uh, websites, the Institute of, um, of Health, National Alliance of, of Mentally Ill, and a number of different resources that you can Google online to be able to find out different ways of being able to, to treat issues. I would probably also encourage um, property managers to uh, utilize the resources that they would seek in their community to be able to find services as well. So a number of different hospitals have mental health service out outreach, and there are um, resources that the counseling center can also direct you to about the off-campus providers and mental health resources that exist in the community as well. And those are always good places to be able to start. Well, Kirk, I'd, we'd like to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us and provide some insight for our listeners and really appreciate the time today. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right. Again, uh, Dr. B, I appreciate you you extending the invitation to, to Dr. Dewar and Having him on the show, that was a great interview. I think there were a lot of things that people can take away, but to go over a couple of quick takeaways, you know, that that you and I picked up on, mm -hmm. I, I really liked what he said about, you know, approach this resident, you know, as far as presenting resources like you would anyone else that's kind of part of your broader community or you know, maybe even family members when, when you're noticing something, there's, you know, there's obviously every community has something, be it, you know, national hotlines or, or something more, more localized that can serve as a, as a tool in helping get that person the help that they need. Uh, and just realize with a student that you've also got this extra layer uh, of support and, and, you know, with, with what is available on campus and the tools that are available there with, with their counseling services. So, so I thought that was a, a really good perspective. What other takeaways did you have? I, I agree, Wes. And one of the things that I picked up on is what you just mentioned is that, you know, building relationships and that's <laughs> a lot of what I'm here to talk to folks about is making sure that you know, you're, you don't see yourself as separate from campus, that you're building relationships with folks on campus. So this is a great opportunity before you're in the midst of a, a crisis, for lack of a better word, that 
you reach out to either the dean of students office or the director of the counseling center. And just to write, you're not reaching out to do a sales pitch. It's a, hey, this is who I am. I'm managing this community across the street. Just wanted to make sure that you could put a face with a name in case we ever encounter a, a situation with a student or using that relationship to even either tap into a training that they already do or get them to come out and do a training for the relevant people off campus. Um, we're, it's the same as on campus, right? I have a staff of resident assistants who are undergraduate students and I have full-time staff as well. They go through training every year and it's not about them being trained to be a mental health provider. In fact, it's absolutely not that. It's it's about yeah. knowing the, the, the signs to look for and then how to best approach the student and then connect them to their resources on campus. Um, just because you're off campus doesn't mean that it can't look the same. Well, yeah, and I... I will park training there for just a second. Um, I want to come back to that, but to get back to to your first point, as it you know relates to to building those relationships, you've said it before. You know, I I've, I I preach this constantly: is you can't wait for an emergency, a tragedy, something of of urgency to to try to develop these relationships. It's going to be you're going to be able to respond a lot quicker, not just to mental health issues, but anything that has to do with the resources that uh, an off-campus housing provider is going to be able to, to utilize from the university. And, you know, it's, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, jumping in to, to see the head of, of counseling for your university may not always be something that you're thinking about, you know, when everything's running smooth, right? Uh, but but it is something that you need to check off the list and you know just make that introduction you know like you kind of described before and if you're and if you're not you know able to get into all those specific departments and and resources at least make sure that you've got a, a great relationship with the dean of students and and the office of student affairs because those are the folks that can make those referrals and introduce you to those people when something does come up. Because um, as you and I mentioned previously, when it comes to being a, uh, a university administrator and getting a request from somebody you know outside of the university, uh, there's this there's a I don't want to call it hesitation um, because there's a there's a duty there, especially when it comes to providing services to a student, regardless if they live on campus or off campus, you know, there's a, there's a duty that there that that professional will respond to, but there's also at least on a subconscious level, <laughs> there's this thought of, okay, why is this person asking me to do this? You know, is there something else going on here that, um, you know, that I'm not aware of maybe with the roommates and, you know, there, there's this, kind of doubting thing that happens, you know, in our brains anytime we meet anybody new, but especially as it, as it relates to our work life and, and people that are kind of outside of our organization that get introduced and requests are made, right? And being able to at least have that introduction, that referral introduction from the dean of students to that head of, of counseling services it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that there's no ulterior motive that, you know, you're reaching out truly because you've got a student in your community and you're in need of assistance and resources. Exactly. So that, so that you know, they know that, okay, this is coming from, you know, probably their boss in a lot of ways. And it's like, okay, this has the blessing. There's obviously a relationship here. These guys are our friends and we need to do what needs to be done for, for this student. Right. So I, again, I just, I can't encourage people enough to, to make sure that you're consistently building relationships with folks at the university. And, you know, I know, and at the same time, I know it's tough. You've got leasing objectives that you're trying to meet. You've got, you've got people that you're trying to train on the sales process Mm -hmm. and everything else. And, and it's, it's a lot of work, but this is something that you've got to work into kind of your monthly schedule of, of meeting and networking with, with university administration, because you never know when you're going to need um, to have a conversation at that point. Um, introductions, uh, <laughs> it's just much more difficult at that point. So uh, to get back to what you were saying about training, 
Yes, it, it is. It's always one of those things, regardless if you're on campus or off campus, you know, if you're providing training for an RA or a community assistant, as it's commonly referred to in the off-campus world, you're, I don't think any of us want to train. <laughs> we don't want to expose ourselves to training them on how to counsel. That That's not the purpose of, of providing uh, training on mental health to to your staff. It's really about identifying patterns and behaviors and, and just signals so that you can say, hey, I recognize that and I think I need to tell somebody about it. And, you know, as I mentioned in the in the interview, you know, our maintenance staff it pl- plays a very big key role in, in doing that. And, you know, to share from a, a personal uh, standpoint, one of the first hugs I ever got from a mother of a resident was actually due to there was um, her her daughter was bulimic and how it kind of came to our attention is the maintenance supervisor who was doing quarterly inspections noticed something in the bathroom that he had dealt with with his um, sister who was was bulimic and you know came to the to the property manager and said, Hey, I know what this is and we need to call the mother or someone because she's, this is not going to end well. And fortunately that, that property manager that I was working for at that time, cause this was very early in my career, she had a brief conversation with, with roommates and, you know, tried to, not seem nosy. And then that prompted enough that she wanted to, to call the parent. The mother came in. Um, some other things were happening right at that time. I can't remember exactly, but she ended up in the hospital. The, the resident ended up in the hospital. And then a couple of weeks later, um, the parents came to, uh, to move her out. And she, the, the mom stopped by. The daughter was not with them when this happened, but the daughter stopped by asked to see the property manager and she hugged all of our necks, including the the maintenance supervisor and said, you know, I just want to thank you guys so much for, for being alert and, and giving me a call because I don't think if you call me that day that we would be having this conversation or it would be a much different conversation that we were having today. Um, and so we just never know, you know, what is is truly happening in everyone's life and and to be able to have a staff that can, because in that situation, he, he only recognized that because his, you know, he had a family member that dealt with that same illness. You know, if it wasn't for that, I I don't know what would have happened. So that's why I say it's, it's very important to either work with your university to provide your staff with some, with some training on that. I know most, uh, and Dr. B, you know, uh, agree or disagree with me on this, but, but I feel like at least in the experiences that I've had, most housing, uh, most directors of, of housing for, for on campus housing, most of them are very open to um, setting up something where they can provide a similar type of training that they do for RAs to, you know, to the housing staff as well when it comes to these type of things. Um, is that typically the case that you've seen? Absolutely. Uh, it, especially it's, it's using the resources wisely. If it's, um, you know, if, like you said, it's typically a community assistant off campus and a resident assistant or resident advisor on campus, but we're talking about very similar job responsibilities it, it would be very easy to add, you know, a handful of extra community assistance into an RA training session or a, a, even a number of RA training sessions um, and, and just further build relationships because chances are they're also students at the same institution. Um, so they could be a community assistant and a resident assistant and they're in the same major and in the same classes. They're just doing uh, the same job just in different places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of training, we're going to give you guys an opportunity, give the audience an opportunity to, in the, in the student housing insight community, we're going to give you guys an opportunity to, to be able to provide your staff with, with something that we're working with Grace Hill on developing uh, as it relates to mental health and being able to identify issues and what resources 
with the university that you can use. Um, this is something that will be built into the Grace Hill system. So if it's something that, that you want to use later, if, you, if you're a subscriber to Grace Hill, you're going to be able to use. But this training is completely free. It's a uh, webinar that we're going to be doing on November 7th at 1 o'clock. And if you want more information, the best thing for you to do is go to studenthousinginsight.com. Again, studenthousinginsight.com. Go to the member login. If you're not a member already, sign up to become a member. And we will be announcing uh, all the details within the Student Housing Insight community. Uh, there will also be a link to that in the show notes. So make sure you check that out as well. Well, Dr. B, I appreciate it. Anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today? No. Uh, they'll hear from me again soon if they log on to that webinar in a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, great. Well, I appreciate it. Again, welcome to the to the Student Housing Insight podcast, and we look forward to talking more to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.